0: Amen. Christ is our hope in life and He is our hope in death. I don't know about you. You look around at the world today and you see a lot of hopeless situations, and that's why we sing the songs that we sing, informed by Scripture, that Jesus Christ brings hope in the midst of hopelessness. Thank you so much, Luke, for reminding us that, for leading us in worship through song. What a joy it is to be together. On the Lord's Day, every Lord's Day, is just an amazing, a beautiful reminder of the fellowship that heaven will be as we get to gather together as the family of God. And so I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22. This is the last chapter in the book of Revelation. This is the last chapter in the whole Bible. And as we come to the end of our study in Revelation We are going to slow down so that we can savor the glories of heaven. We need to enjoy, to realize, to see, and to savor these glories that are ours. If you are in Christ, if you know him, if you love him, this is your eternal hope. This is your eternal home. And we need this hope for the days ahead. I don't know if you've had that experience recently where you have that feeling, that pit in your stomach, where you realize that you've left something behind, you've forgotten something, you've lost something. Maybe it happened this morning. Maybe you forgot where you put your keys, or maybe you forgot where you parked your car. Not this morning, hopefully, but maybe last time you were at the mall or something. Can't find where I parked my car. Maybe it's your cell phone. You left your cell phone somewhere on a table. You thought you left it there, and For some reason, we always do that check where you just go kind of back and forth, hoping that the first time you don't find it, but the next time it'll be there. Just all the pockets, where is it? Nope, it's not there. Can't find it. And then you just start scrolling through your memory, okay? Where was the last time that I found it? Where was the last time I used it? Where was the last time I saw it? Where might I have left it? Maybe you have that feeling, I'm never going to get it back. I lost it for good, and I will never again find it. The entirety of human history is really a story of lost and found. It's a story of lost and found. What we had in the Garden of Eden was lost. And the question throughout the entirety of the scriptures is, will we get it back again? Can we get it back again? And the Bible answers this question so beautifully. It opens at the very beginning in Genesis with this beautiful picture of what we had and then we lose it all and then throughout the entirety of the scriptures, it's God working to regain it for us on our behalf. And at the very end, the last chapter in the Bible, this beautiful book end, what we would call an inclusio, from the very beginning to the very end, we have paradise being given back to us and then some. Paradise completely restored This is the way any good story is told, right? You have the hobbit opening up in the shire, and then a whole lot of awful things happen, dangerous places, perilous decisions, but it ends back in the shire in safety. The Lord of the Rings follows suit. You go through the worst possible experiences just to find yourself back where you began, but in safety, in security, with absolute hope knowing that nothing can steal your joy. In the Bible, we open with a garden. We open with a bride and a groom meeting. We open with God's presence being with man. We open with a river. We open with a tree. And then all of those things are lost. And then we have at the very end, in the book of Revelation, a bride and a groom, God's presence dwelling with man, a river and a tree. There's a whole lot of deja vu happening in Revelation 22. And as we study this section of Scripture, I want the Garden of Eden to be reverberating in your mind and in your hearts because I believe that's what God wants. I believe that's what John is seeing and feeling as he's he's writing these words down. That God in His grace is bringing everything to the perfect conclusion that He intended. So, let's read these verses. Revelation 22 verses 1 through 5. And we will see in these five verses, seven realities that were lost, but are now regained. Seven realities that were lost, but are now regained in Christ for all eternity. Revelation 22, verse 1, John writes, "...then he," that is that angel that was taking him on this heavenly tour, "...showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal." coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his slaves will serve him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. They will have no need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Father, we come to another section In this book where we read these words and they just seem too good to be true. God, help us to feel that. I know that every individual here has walked into this church with a a different form of chaos and trials and suffering and sorrow. That this last week has presented to them and they walk in with a burden that at times feels too great for them to bear. And then we open your word and we read, There is coming a day when the curse is gone. There is coming a day when we get to see your face and we will hear from you explanations of everything that was going on in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the trial, how you were working for your greatest good and for our greatest glory and for our greatest good. God, we're blown away that we even get to read these words because we know that these words that are true about our everlasting future can anchor our souls now into a confident joy and a confident assurance that we will finally rest. We will finally receive the reward that you have promised to us. And we want that day to inform this day. So, Holy Spirit, we pray as as we do every Lord's day. Please open our eyes right now to behold wonderful things from your law. If you do not work to give us that gift of illumination to open our eyes, we will be like those in the scriptures who, while hearing, they didn't hear, while seeing, they didn't see. We don't want to be that way. We don't want to be stiff necked and stubborn in our hearts. We want to be submissive to your word and we want to let these words inform our affections and radically change us so that we would leave this place, walk out those doors, different. Make that happen through your spirit, according to your word, for the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5, give us seven glorious realities that were once lost, but in the eternal state will be restored to us. Reality number one, eternal life is restored. Eternal life is restored. This is what we had in the Garden of Eden. We had life that was given to Adam and to to Eve, and it was supposed to be life lived forever, for all of eternity. But on the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die There was a spiritual separation that happened on the day that they ate of it. They didn't physically die that day because God, in His grace, killed an animal, clothed Adam and Eve with animal skin, said, you're not going to die physically today. But there was a spiritual separation, and on that day, they began their physical death. But that which was forfeited by sin in the first garden is here restored beyond measure in the new Jerusalem. The words open this section, then he showed me, that's a, a familiar phrase that opens a new description of the new Jerusalem. He is that angel that had been giving him this beautiful tour of heaven in the new Jerusalem. He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal. My Bible says clear as crystal. Those are two words put together in the Greek, lamp, lampros, crystallos, lamp, bright, shining light, crystalos shining like Crystal. Now, we've seen those two Greek words all over the place in Revelation, but we've never seen them attached together up until now. This river has a distinct quality that is unlike anything that we've ever seen in this life. Just like we've never known a city like the New Jerusalem, we have never known a river like this river before. So the angel shows him this river, and it's flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. We've talked about this briefly in chapter 21. From the throne of God and the Lamb, joint occupancy on this throne. Two persons sit on this throne in one essence. This is the beautiful doctrine of the Trinity. Two persons sit on this throne, God the Father and God the Son. And of course, it's got got to be flowing from the throne because it's flowing from God himself and therefore God being the author of life is able to give life through this river of life. What is this river flowing through the middle of the street that was paved with gold and this transparent beauty that you could see through it? Well, in the millennial kingdom, we have a a taste of what this river is going to be like. In the millennial kingdom, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8, Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 9. Uh, describes it as this beautiful river that's going to flow from Jerusalem, going all the way down to the Dead Sea. Everything that it touches on its path uh, it has life given to it. And even in the Dead Sea, when it finally makes its way to the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea is given life. But I think that John is wanting us to go back further than the Millennial Kingdom, wanting to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You remember in the Garden of Eden, there was one river that flowed, and it was divided into four different areas. Four different rivers that ended up flowing from this one main stream, this river of life that flowed into four different rivers, the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. And so here, that river is back in the garden of God, in the throne room of God, flowing from the temple, flowing from God's throne as the temple itself. Since there is no more need for the temple, his presence there flowing from his throne, going to any individual that would want it. This river is a beautiful river. It's clear as crystal. This river was seen in Revelation chapter 7, verse 17. One of the 24 elders was showing it to John that this reality of this river is given to anyone who would drink. If you want to drink from this river, you can drink. And that's the beautiful aspect about this. It's flowing from the middle into the middle of the street, verse 2. That means there's unlimited access Right down the middle. Anyone who can get at this can get to it. Everyone's allowed access to it. Inexhaustible grace and life. This is the fountain of living water that Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, that we forsake every time we follow sin. We hew out for ourselves cisterns that hold no water. They're just dirty, muddy, sandy cisterns. When Jesus is there saying, I've got life to give you, eternal life, satisfying life. This is the same description that was used with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. You want physical water, I have eternal water to give you. I have life that will spring up not only to give you satisfaction, Jesus says, but also to give everyone around you satisfaction as it springs up out of you to others. This is what he says explicitly in John chapter 7, verse 38. Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from his inmost being. And here in the New Jerusalem, we finally have access to this river completely without any distraction, without anything to take us away, no temptation, and this is the river that gives us life. We're all going to die. The question is, how can we live forever? And the answer is here. God, through the Lamb, God the Father, through God the Son, slaughtered in your place to give you eternal life, has provided a way for you to live forever. And we will never, ever die. You know that phrase, all good things must come to an end? That phrase doesn't apply to heaven. You and I are going to a place where that phrase is gone. No more in our vocabulary. All good things must come to an end, not there. Here, yes, not there. Eternal life restored. Number two, not only is eternal life restored, the river that we lost in the garden is now given to us in the new Jerusalem. Number two, the tree of life is restored to us. The tree of life is restored to us. Middle of verse two, on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There was only one tree that gave life like this in the, new, uh, in the Garden of Eden, and here we see it again. We lost access to it in the Garden of Eden, but here we are given access to it yet again. And we're given access in a way that's decently indescribable. My Bible says on either side of the river. So in your mind, you're trying to picture how does this work. You have a tree that's standing somehow Above the river with roots going on either side, it could be that. Some people would go all the way back to Ezekiel 47 which gives a description in the Millennial Kingdom of a tree that was given and it's rows of trees on either side of the river. So it could be rows of trees. The idiom that's used in the Greek, the little figure of speech that's used, literally says, from here and from there. So this tree, from here and from there, it's everywhere. The accessibility is everywhere. The fruit is everywhere. And it bears fruit in its season, but its seasons aren't like our seasons. It doesn't bear one piece of fruit every year. It bears 12 pieces of fruit every year, one every month. That tells us that, number one, the new creation is going to have a completely different basis of uh, figuring out the seasons. We've already looked at that with regard to there being no need for the sun, no need for the moon. Perhaps there is a sun and perhaps there is a moon, but there's no need for it because the glory of the Lord illumines the new Jerusalem. And I think more specifically what John is wanting us to see is that as this tree is bearing 12 different kinds of fruit, Yielding fruit every single month. It's variety. It's satisfying. There's no waiting around for this. There's no plant and wonder if it's going to sprout up. There's just finally an enjoyment that you can enjoy as soon as it pops up. No more waiting around. It's bearing fruit every month. When the Bible says there's a month in the New Jerusalem, that tells us there's time in the New Jerusalem. We don't know how that's going to work, but there's time. We already talked about there has to be time because there's music in the New Jerusalem. There's music in the New Heavens and the New Earth. So there has to be time because music requires time. But we don't know exactly how this time will flow, how this time will, the, the seasons will uh, play themselves out. What we do know is this tree will never have a barren season. It will never run out of fruit. It will never lose its supply. You will never have to be afraid of a shortage. What are the fruits that it's going to give us? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. Maybe pomegranate. Some people think pomegranate because that's a fruit that is often described in the Old Testament. Maybe it's an apple. Maybe it's bananas. Maybe it's coffee. Maybe there's a coffee bean month. <laughs> Gives us coffee. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But here's what I do know. Whatever you're thinking of right now, it's going to be better than that. It's going to be better than that. As we said last week, Satan wants you to think heaven's going to be boring. It's going to be better than you could possibly imagine. Eternal life is restored to us, the, the tree of life is restored to us. So we have a, a river of life and a tree of life that we can eat from and we can drink from and we can be satisfied and we can live for forever. Number three. The third aspect, the third reality that's restored to us that we once lost but is now being given back to us is perfect unity and perfect peace. Perfect unity and perfect peace. This is the end of verse 2. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. We saw this last week with the nations walking by the light of the Lamb in the New Jerusalem. The nations, we still have our ethnicity And it's diverse and it's beautifully diverse, but in its diversity, it's completely unified. No more fighting, no more wars, no more division. This tree is rectifying, it heals all the nations. All the nations are gathered together around this tree and no one fights for it. No one fights to control it. Nobody wars against it or around it. This tree amends what was wrong, the curse that was brought about by death and destruction. But now this curse is being lifted and is being destroyed and is being done away with altogether. So all of the people groups in heaven, all of the people groups that are here on earth that will be represented in heaven will gather together here, perfectly diverse and perfectly unified. To use an old Hebrew word, this is shalom. This is peace that goes deeper than any sense that we could understand here. This is peace between enemies that has finally, that that reconciliation has happened, so you've removed whatever was the barrier between you and enjoying reconciliation. This is peace. This is is a beautiful satisfaction in relationships. It's for the healing of the nations. That word healing in Greek is therapeo. It comes from, our, our word therapeutic comes from this word. It's therapeutic. It's, it's energizing. It's healing. It's like vitamins that revitalize you, that promote enjoyment and satisfaction. It's exciting. These leaves give unity. We once had it. It doesn't take long in Genesis 1 through 3 to see the disunity and how quickly our unity is broken. You, do you remember Genesis opens up, you know how it starts. God creates the heavens and the earth, he makes all the things that we see, he makes man. Ultimately says it's not good that man should be left alone. He needs a helper. So God makes Eve, God makes woman. And the very first thing that Adam says, when he opens his eyes from that deep sleep that God put him through to take that rib out and fashion it into a woman, the very first thing that Adam says, he can't even say it. It's the very first song in the Bible. He sings a song, he breaks out with expressive song, just overjoyed. Thank you, Lord, that you gave me my wife. And then, not even an entire chapter later, you have Adam saying to God, this woman you gave me. I mean, barely any time taken to destroy the unity. First, Adam saying, I can't believe you gave me this amazing gift. And then Adam saying, God, why'd you give me this gift? But here, in the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, perfect unity and perfect peace is restored. Do we have to eat from this tree? Do we have to eat from the leaves to enjoy this? Is it a necessity? Do we have to eat it all in heaven? What about waste? Is there going to be waste in heaven as we eat? There are so many questions, and the questions are much easier than the answers. That's why I think Peter sums it up best when he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, we will have joy inexpressible. So we can't even describe and express what's going to be happening, but we can trust with what we do know, black and white, emphatically and explicitly, we can trust this is going to be better than our wildest imaginations. We have eternal life given back to us. We have the tree of life restored to us. We have perfect unity and peace restored to us. Number four, the fourth reality is we have a curseless World restored. No more curse anymore. This is a world without a curse. That was Genesis 1 and 2. And then Genesis 3, all the way through until Revelation 21 and 22, we had a curse. But here, verse 3, there will no longer be any curse. And because of that, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. There's never going to be a a sense for us to try and war against God. There's never going to be a fight against Him. The curse is completely removed. And because of that, we have access back to the tree of life. We have access back to what we lost in Eden. You remember in the Millennial Kingdom, Revelation chapter 20, the curse was being reversed. It was slowly starting to turn backwards as we saw all these amazing things happening in the millennial kingdom. But here, it's not that the curse is being reversed. It's being removed entirely. No more curse. No more depravity. No more sin nature. We're all born with a sin nature. But in heaven, we will no longer have a sin nature. In this life, the, the penalty of sin for believers is removed at the cross. The power of sin is broken at the cross, but the presence of sin still remains. But there in heaven, the presence of sin is removed once and for all. No more death, no more dying, no more dust, no more decay. None of that ever again. Turn to Romans chapter 8. I want you to see this. We talked briefly about this last week. Paul talks about the world being cursed. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul says, First, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Because the anxious longing of creation. This world is longing for something. What is it longing for? It waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Why? Why? Because the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that ultimately the creation itself would be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, we sinned, humans sinned, and God cursed the ground. Why did that happen? Why, when humans sinned, did God not curse humans? He cursed the ground. And the ground and the curse that came along with the earth was ultimately going to humanity as a whole. But why did God curse the ground because of us? The ground didn't do anything. The ground didn't disobey. I believe that the reason why God curses all of creation when we sin is because we do not know how grievous and offensive our sin truly is. And therefore, God gives us a physical representation so that our eyes can see the tragedy of sin. When you see a massive hurricane take the lives of hundreds of people, when you see an earthquake devastate regions in California, when you see massive wars that go on over the natural resources in this world, when you see this terrible destruction happen, I think Paul is telling us God cursed the ground so that we would see those tragedies and we'd realize this is a physical outworking of how awful my sin is. When was the last time you were as grieved about your sin against God as you are when you see a natural disaster happen? You see, the whole world looks on those natural disasters and texts money and And goes to offer relief, and we with one unified voice say, this is wrong, and we want to do something to help. But we look around at our own sinfulness, and we say, yeah, I can do this. I can deal with this. I don't need help. But God promises creation, liberation. There's hope. He subjects this world with a curse, but he promises one day that curse is going to be lifted. Verse 22, we know right now that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And we ourselves do that. So God says, I'm going to promise liberation from the bondage to decay and the curse and ultimately give you a curseless world. But notice, this new creation that God's making This new creation, it's compared to a birth, which is really helpful for us theologically to understand what's happening in the new heavens and the new earth. We talked about this a lot. We're not going to be sitting on a cloud playing a harp. We're not going to be see-through bodies. When this new creation is given in this analogy of a birth, we know there is continuity and discontinuity. There is something similar and then something different. When a child is born... That child is a human, not a horse, right? Sometimes they smell like horses, but that child is a human. So there's obviously continuity. A human gave birth to a human, just like the old creation that we are standing on right now will give birth to the new creation. There's continuity. There's similarities. But at the same time, that baby that's being born is not the mother. So there's discontinuity. There's a difference From this creation to that creation. But you remember what God the Father said. Behold, I am making all things new. He does not say, behold, I am making all new things. There is similarity to this world. And that's why in the new heavens and the new earth, in Revelation 22, this world has the curse finally removed. Finally lifted. And just think about it. If we are here in a cursed world, we are on the wrong side of heaven, as it were. If the wrong side of heaven can be so beautiful and majestic and glorious, what will the right side of heaven be like? If these smoking remains of God's Edenic paradise are so stunning to us, what will Earth look like when it's resurrected? When it's made new? When it's restored beyond what the original was? That's what God is promising to us here in verse three. C.S. Lewis said it this way: We want something else, which we can hardly be put in, which can hardly be put into words. We want to be united with the beauty that we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become a part of it. And he says, "And so we shall. So we shall." He gives. Just one of the best illustrations of this in the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia. I don't know if you've read it. Last battle, very, very helpful book. One of the best descriptions in an illustrative form of what the new heavens will be like. Lucy, one of the Pevensey kids, is talking with Jewel, the unicorn. They're mourning the loss of Narnia. Life as they know it has ended. Narnia as they know it has been destroyed. And they're passing into Aslan's country. That's heaven. And as they do, Lucy says this. Look at those hills. The nice woody ones and the blue ones behind them. Aren't they like the southern border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund after a moment's silence. Why, they're exactly like. Look, there's Mount Pyre with its forkhead. There's the pass into Archon Land. There's everything. And yet, they're not like. They're different. They have more colors on them. They look further away than I remembered, and they're more, I don't know, more like the real thing, said the Lord Diggory softly. Suddenly, Farsight, the eagle, spread his wings, soared 30 or 40 feet up into the air, circled round, and alighted onto the ground. Kings and queens, he cried, we've all been blind." We are only beginning to see where we are. From up there I've seen it all. Estomer, Beaver's Dam, the Great River and Care Paravel still shining on the edge of the Eastern Sea. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. "But how can it be?" said Peter. "Aslan told us that us older ones would never return to Narnia, but here we are." "Yes," said Eustace, "and we saw it destroyed and the sun was put out." Just think about the way that we're going to see heaven. We saw earth destroyed, right? At the end of Revelation 20, earth and heaven flee away from the presence of God. We saw it's gone. And yet, it's so similar. Lucy says, yes, it's also different. The eagle is right, said Lord Diggory. Listen, Peter, when Aslan said you could never go back into Narnia, he meant the Narnia that you were thinking of. That's not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here. Just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world, you need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures, have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door, and of course it is different, as different as a real thing is from a shadow, or as waking life is from a dream. C.S. Lewis concludes by saying, it was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried. I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land that I've been looking for all of my life, though I never knew it was until now. the reason why we loved the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked a little like this. I, I read those words, and I, I think through what we've studied as a church in Revelation, and I think through where we are, as a church. We have said goodbye to some precious loved ones. These last few years have been hard. There are loved ones that we know that are on the precipice of eternity. And to think that they're in heaven right now. Saying, oh, the reason I loved earth is because sometimes it looked a little like this. This is where we are forever. We're home. The only reason we can call it home is because the curse is lifted. No longer will there be any curse. Brothers and sisters, please know without a shadow of a doubt, that the loved ones that we have seen ushered into heaven, called home, they are enjoying eternal bliss at this very moment because Jesus Christ has said, enter into your rest. They're home. And one day we will be with them and we will be home. Number five, The fifth reality that is restored to us is perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. Finally, perfect obedience is restored. You remember Adam in the garden? God gave him commands. By the way, God also gave him work. Before the curse ever was brought into the world, before sin ever entered into the world, God gave Adam commands that he was supposed to live out. Work is a blessing. It's a gift from the Lord. It's not a curse. The curse brought hardship into the work that we live out. But work itself is a gift from the Lord. And Adam enjoyed working on God's behalf, doing exactly what God told him to do with perfection and with satisfaction until sin entered the world. So too, end of verse 3, his bondservants will serve him. And end of verse 5, they will reign Forever and ever. We will serve him. And we will finally serve him in perfect obedience. Perfect satisfaction in our obedience. We will never disobey. We will never be tempted to disobey. And we will never begrudgingly obey. We will always love to obey. We will be his slaves. That's My Bible translates doulos in the Greek here in verse 3 as bond servants. A better translation would be slaves. We are his slaves, but we're slaves in a different way than we think of slavery because we're also reigning with Christ. We're serving him, we're slaving for him, but we're also reigning with him. We've been purchased out of the slave market of sin and of death in this life in order to be ushered into the family of God, adopted as sons and daughters. Jesus said to his own disciples, No longer do I call you slaves. I call you friends because I've told you everything that I'm doing. Not only friends, but those who will reign, fellow heirs reigning forever and ever. What will life in the new creation be like? Some people tell me they don't like the idea of heaven because heaven's going to be boring. Well, this tells us right here it's not going to be idle. This tells us we're going to be continually serving. We're not lounging around, and we will be serving in absolute perfection. We will never feel useless. I don't know if you've felt that before, where you want to step in, you want to lend a hand, you want to do something to help. And as you do, you feel like, I'm just making this scenario worse. I should just, the most help that I can offer you is by leaving. You will never have that feeling ever again in heaven. As you jump in to serve, God will equip you with his glorious purpose and pleasure to serve perfectly, usefully, effectively, and efficiently every single time. What we'll be doing, we'll be planting, we'll be building, we'll be discovering, never driven by greed or power. Isaiah says that anything that we turn our hands to do will prosper. We will reign, we will rule. There's a lot of questions about what it looks like to reign and to rule, and Maybe, Lord willing, uh, towards the end of our time, we'll kind of go through a a sermon on questions and answers in uh, the book of Revelation regarding what we'll be doing in heaven, what it'll look like. But this this is Eden restored. Adam, in perfect paradise, enjoyed working and serving God. And in heaven, we will be finally free to obey the greatest commandment of all, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, as we are loving our neighbors, the nations, we are finally free at last to do that in its perfection. And now here's an absolute mind-blowing reality about us serving God in heaven. You can mark this down. We don't have enough time to look at it, but Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 40. Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 40. Jesus teaches that in paradise, in heaven, God himself will serve us. He will satisfy us. He will care for us. He will come to us. As we're serving him and continually working and enjoying our work, he will gladly serve us and aid us in serving him. Not only is eternal life restored, not only is the tree of life restored, not only is perfect unity and peace Restored, not only is a curseless world restored, not only is perfect obedience restored, but number six, unwavering security is restored. Unwavering security. We, we saw this last week that the gates are completely open, anybody can go in and out because there's no need for a defense system in the New Jerusalem. And we see this here in verse four. Middle of verse 4, his name will be on their foreheads. His name will be on their foreheads, will mark their forehead. Back in Revelation chapter 7, we saw 144,000 Jewish men marked the name of God on their forehead. They were identified as being secured by God in the middle of the great tribulation and unable to die through it. They were spared, they were saved, they're going to go into the millennial kingdom. Human beings, non-glorified human beings, they survive and they're not killed by the Antichrist. But here, in Revelation 22, it's not 144,000 being marked out. It's every single person in the New Jerusalem being marked with the name of God, belonging forever to Him. Nothing can kill you. Nothing can snatch you away from His hand. Nothing can be destructive in your eternal security. You belong to Him. He owns you. He loves you. He'll serve you. He'll care for you, and you never again have to fear being taken away with sin, with temptation, with any allurement in this life. The name of God was placed upon the Old Testament priests. They wore a band around their heads that had the name of Yahweh on it to remind them who I am serving, to remind them as I'm serving the people and mediating between God and man who I'm serving on behalf of. Here, we are serving God to one another as we... Reflect His divine glory in who we are and in everything that we do. Just think of the peace and security that Adam and Eve had in the garden before sin entered the world. They didn't know what fear was, they didn't know what anxiety was, they didn't know what worry was. So, too, we will be in a place where fear, anxiety, and worry are gone. Finally, number seven, the seventh reality. We will have an unlimited, satisfying relationship restored. Finally, an unlimited, satisfying relationship is restored. This is in the middle of verse four, or the beginning of verse four that I left out, because this is the hinge on which everything turns. Verse four, they will see... His face. The only reason we have any of these promises, all the no-longers from last week and all these promises of restored realities is because of the Lamb. Heaven is heaven because of Jesus. So here, we're reminded of the, the, uh, Adam and Eve's relationship with God before the fall entered the world. After Adam and Eve sinned, they hid themselves from God. Don't look at us. We can't be near you. Even Moses, desiring to see the glory of God, show me your glory. God says, I can only show you a portion of my back. And even that, I have to thrust you into the cleft of the rock and hide your face from me or else you will die. Nobody can see God and live, see his face and live. But just as Sergio read this morning, Jesus promised that the pure in heart will see God, he will see his face. The original audience who's receiving this letter, you think about good Jewish men and women who know the Old Testament, who know the Torah. When they hear the words and they will see his face, you would have heard gasps in the congregation. There is no way that we can see his face. That's too intimate. That's too close. We'll die. That's one of the reasons why we need glorified bodies, because our non-glorified bodies are not fit to see the glory of God and to live. So we are given glorified bodies that can see the glory of God and not be burst into a thousand pieces. You'll see his face. Who, who's the his there? There's a lot of questions because we can't see God the Father. Jesus said no one has seen him. No one's going to see him. He's spirit doesn't have a body like us. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King, He has a body. And He always will forever have a body, glorified body. So is it Jesus alone? Is it God the Father alone with some crazy formula that we don't know? Well, if you go back in verse 3, there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face. The his is connecting to both, again, the two occupants on the throne, God the Father and God the Son. Grammatically, face is belonging to both the Father and the Lamb. We will see the face of God the Father through the face of Jesus Christ. Perfect intimacy, perfectly being known, perfectly knowing. You'll never again want anything else you'll be satisfied. You won't ever want anyone else. You'll never feel incomplete. You'll never feel deprived. You'll never feel cheated or shortchanged. You'll never know anything but perfect contentment as you stare into the face of our Savior and our God. Because we'll be with him all by himself. He will capture the entirety of your gaze all by himself. The paradise of God is not the streets of gold. The paradise of God is not the gates of pearl. The paradise of God is the presence of God. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. And the same author who wrote Revelation writes in 1 John chapter 3 behold, or see, or you, you have to look at this. This is so amazing how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. That is truly unbelievable. How is this possible? And that's why he says, and such we are. We are. He doesn't just call us this. He makes us this. And it's for this reason the world doesn't know us because it doesn't know him. It didn't know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. I love that. We know some things, but we don't know all of it. We don't know exactly what it's going to be. How old are we going to be in heaven? How tall are we going to be in heaven? We don't know. But what we do know is this. When he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We will see his face. Seven glorious realities that find its culmination in the seventh, that we will be with Christ, with the one that we love. We will finally see his face. And John says in verse 3, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. This hope should motivate Us to live differently. Do you live your life in light of this reality? There's a beautiful, we said this last week, there's a beautiful already not yet component to this. Just think through those seven realities. We will be given eternal life. Yes, we will be given eternal life then, but we also know eternal life now. John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the Father who sent me, Jesus said. We have been given the water of everlasting life springing up in us. So we will have that in the future in our eternal home, but we have a a preview of that now. The tree of life. One day we will eat perfectly from that tree and be given life and be given healing and nourishment. And right now we can attach ourselves to the vine and be branches that grow off of the nourishment that Christ gives us. One day we will be perfectly unified. And in the here and now, Jesus said, they will know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. You live differently. One day the curse will be gone. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we consider the present sufferings not worthy to be compared with that moment. We live in light of that moment. There will be perfect obedience. We fight now. We fight to obey because we know that final last day, the fight's over. We'll serve and reign him in perfection, so fight hard now, knowing the fight will end one day. We will have perfect security then. We know that perfect security now. Nothing can snatch us out of the hand of Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And finally, I turn one last passage, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We will see His face. What does that do for us now? Verse 18, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, Paul writes, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God. So we are beholding now dimly the glory of God that we'll know fully on that day. But because we're beholding now, in part, in the mirror, A dim mirror, the glory of God, we are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So, by beholding the glory of the Lord, we become more like Him. If you're struggling with sin, if you're fighting sin, if you want to overcome sin, you don't do it by staring at that sin, you do it by staring at the Savior. And by beholding, you are becoming. So here in verse 18, Paul says that as we behold the glory of the Lord, we're transformed into the image of Christ. And I love how he says, from glory to glory. Or some of your translations might say, from degree of glory to the next glory. It's incremental. It's slow but steady. It's a lot slower than any of us want it to be. But it's happening. And it's not happening by our power just as from the Lord, the Spirit. It's happening by the one who has given himself for you, given his spirit to you, implanted into your heart in such a way that he empowers you to live a transformed life. This should evoke personal responses, present responses. That future reality should change us now. Embrace this lamb. Give every breath that you have to the glory of God. Worship him. Trust him and do it now. If you do not know Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation to trust in Christ. From the first chapter of the Bible now to the last chapter of the Bible, the purposes of God will never be thwarted. We can try to mess it up as much as we want. And God in his grace says, I'll redeem and I'll restore We asked at the beginning of our time this morning, is there anything that we can do to restore that Garden of Eden? We lost it. Is there anything that we can do? And the answer to that is no. There's nothing that we can do. We lost it for good if it was dependent on us recovering it, on us restoring it. That's why God in his love being rich in mercy, gave us his son to make us alive. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We could do nothing to be saved. We could do nothing to restore paradise. And so God says, I'm going to send Jesus to win a perfect record of righteousness for you on your behalf and then to restore that Garden of Eden beyond what you could possibly comprehend. This this isn't just paradise regained It's paradise restored. And it isn't just paradise restored. It's paradise completely consummated. That's what we have to look forward to. So live today in light of that day that we will see his face. Father, we thank you for this eternal hope. We forget it so often. We forget the means of this eternal hope so often. We think that it's dependent on us We think that it's dependent on us to make this happen. It's not. You are the one. The river of life is flowing from your throne. The tree of life is growing because of you. You heal the nations. You bring peace. You bring unity. Heaven is heaven because of you. And so, Father, we want to stare now. We want to behold now. Yes, in part. Yes, in a mirror dimly. But we want to behold now the glory of God. God, I pray now, even as we begin to behold you in these elements, I pray that we would be undone by your grace yet again, that you came to us, you purchased us, you saved us, you cleansed us, and you will bring us safely home. We pray in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. At this time, I'm going to ask the men to come and grab the uh, communion elements. We are going to begin with the bread this morning, and as they're passing it uh, to you, I want to ask you to just listen to a song and to meditate on the reality of the hope that we have in finally seeing Christ's face and what that will mean for us in that day.
1: grow dim though the word of God is trampled on by foolish men though the wicked never stumble and abound in every place we will be behind us through the blood In your arms of endless grace As your bride forever When we see your face
0: Father, thank you Thank you that that day is coming. Oh. We long for it. We want it now. We pray with John. Come quickly. But we know you will. You're coming to take us home. And we want to be with you. We just want you. We're so sick of our sin, of our selfishness. We're so tired of our anxiety and our trials. This world is painful. And it makes our hearts cry out for a world where there is no more sorrow. But we know all of those things are impossible if it's not you making it happen. Father, give hope. Give comfort now in this moment through your spirit that we will see your face. It's coming. And we'll be made like you. God, may that make us run today differently. May we fight. May we fight as good soldiers because we know that our general has said, you're going to win the war and it will end and you'll be safe. God, we love you so much. Our hearts just cry out from this text from our singing, from our fellowship that we just want to love you more. And so here now with these elements as we gather around your table as the family of God, we want to gather with joy doing exactly what Paul told us to do. Proclaim his death until he comes again. You're coming again. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he passed it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Paul tells us that as often as we remember him doing this, we remember it declaring his death. We have to remind each other that his death is the only way that we have life. We forget that. We think maybe we're good enough. Maybe if we try hard enough, he'll gray on a curve. We forget it's only by the death of Jesus that we can enter heaven. But Paul adds at the end, you proclaim his death until he comes again. You are assured as we take this together. We are promised and assured with confidence he's coming back. So take this now, knowing he's coming back to get you. And do so with gratitude in your hearts. Let's partake together.
2: Your only son, no sin to hide But you have sent him from your side To walk upon this guilty son And to become the Lamb of God Oh, Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God the Holy Lamb of God Oh wash me in His precious blood My Jesus Christ The Lamb of God Your gift of love They cry. They laughed and scorned him as he died, the humble king, they named the fraud and sacrificed the lamb of God. Oh lamb of God, sweet lamb of God. Christ, the Lamb of God. I was so lost, I should have died. But you have brought me to your side to be led by your staff and rod. And to be called the Lamb of God, O Lamb of God, sweet Lamb.
0: The Holy Lamb of God. Do you love him? This cup is a memorial. It reminds us of what Jesus did because he loved us. And the Bible says that we love him because he first loved us. So every time we partake of this, we are reminding ourselves of how much God loves us. Let that fuel your love for him. He doesn't love us because we first loved him. He loved us while we were his enemies. Gave himself for us. That was the only way that sin could be atoned for. What can wash away our sins? Not the blood of bulls and goats. Not the blood of animal sacrifices. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. On the night that Christ was betrayed, he took that cup. The cup of the new covenant, he said. It was that third cup in the Passover, the cup of redemption. And he says, you're not just being redeemed from a political oppressor. You're being redeemed from sin, from death, from the wrath of God and reconciled perfectly in the family of God. Paul says that as often as we drink of this, we do so remembering him, proclaiming his death, until he comes again. Let's remember together. Father, we do remember. We are so forgetful that we need this on a regular basis to remind us that it is you who began the good work, it is you who are perfecting us, and it is you who will complete it. We love you, the Holy Lamb of God, and we want to love you more. Help us to do that this week as we serve you, as we are your ambassadors, as we, as we dive in to sweet fellowship with one another to be encouraged by how amazing you are. And may we live today in light of that day when you are coming again. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Let's stand together. Our benediction this morning is from Jude. You know it well. Verse 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore, and all God's people said. Amen. Blessings on the rest of your week. We'll see you Wednesday, Thursday, Friday for small group. God bless you all.